All right, so we talked last time about the cross and how at the cross we see really just two incredible polar opposite things. We see the snake on the pole and we talked about how Jesus revealed the, just the depravity of the human condition and kingdoms of the world that are based on power over, coercion, violence, scapegoating. We talked about that and that in contrast, we see what the king looks like and we see what God's kingdom looks like. God's kingdom looks like power under. Some have called towel power, service. That's the kingdom power. In contrast to coercion, the kingdom power is to speak the truth in love and allow others to freely make up their own mind. In contrast to violence, Jesus is the prince of peace. And in contrast to scapegoating, we have forgiveness and love. And so things really come into clarity, I think, at the cross. All of these, these issues, we see better than we've ever seen them before. And again, two kingdoms in contrast. We could read all the verses in Isaiah and many other places, but the essence of the satanic kingdom, I would say, is really survival of the fittest, which is, I am willing to kill you that I might live. And in Jesus, of course, we see the opposite. I am willing to die that you might live. So we begin to kind of separate in our minds which kingdom we want to be a part of. Now, the cross is usually viewed as uh, primarily as something that allows us access to heaven, that that's the primary importance. But uh, I would like to also suggest, or just see what you think about this, that the cross actually is a way of life. That when we see what Jesus did in the upper room, Gethsemane, the cross, um, is that a model for how we are to live? It sounds dangerous. I think it is dangerous if we're just thinking about our, our safety and all of that. But I would like to propose that this is also the clearest, when we want to kind of model how we want to live in this world, the, you know, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's, it's a dangerous path, but I think that is the path for a Christian. So is it practical? Is it safe? And I really like uh, this quote here by Yoder, who said, the vision of ultimate good being determined by faithfulness and not results is the point where we modern men get off. In other words, we prioritize what works, results, is it practical? And it seems to me that we want to have a higher principle than that, which is really faithfulness. We're faithful to the Jesus way, even though we might think, boy, it's not going to work with this enemy. It's not going to work in this situation. And the problem is when we begin to do that, we begin to see that it doesn't work anywhere and we just give up on the idea altogether. Right? So the, I think the highest ethic here is that we really become identify what is the Jesus way and how do we become faithful to that. Okay, that that would be a higher ethic than is it going to work. So does it work? Well, frequently it doesn't, okay, but what we see at the cross is maybe not immediately, but just look what happened. The army officer saw what happened. He praised God saying certainly he was a good man and, and certainly this is someone who'd seen many crucifixions, but... Are you used to seeing a crucifixion where Jesus converts a thief next to him and where he forgives his enemies and where he makes sure his mother is taken care of? And I think when the Roman officer just saw the way Jesus dealt with that whole situation, 
had a powerful impact. And in other uh, Gospels, he said, this man really was the Son of God. And then when the people gathered there to watch the spectacle, saw what happened, they all went back home beating their breasts in sorrow because it is not expected that when you torture someone to death that they're going to offer forgiveness and that they're going to relate to the situation in the way Jesus did. And so it had a powerful effect. And we could make a much bigger point on this, but I really like to think that the way Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, uh, we gave a few examples of this, how yes, he was hard on them, but at the same time, uh, it's really a model of how to treat enemies. Look at the way he treated the Pharisees with a woman caught in adultery. And that many of the early Christians, of course, were of the party of the Pharisees. That this had an impact. Paul, of course, who was he? He was a Pharisee. That Jesus was able to win over many of these people by the way he treated them. So, does it work? Not always. But it is, I would say, the most powerful way to transform the world. When you live in this way, when you forgive, when you're even willing to suffer for others when your highest priority is not self-preservation. It's dangerous, yes, but it can have a tremendous impact. Now, what I want to talk about here is a little bit this idea of Jesus as king. And there's a book I'll mention that, that has this title, How God Became King. And this verse in John we've read quite a few times, which I think is just really significant. So I'll just read it again. It fits into this context where Jesus said, remember all the way through, he says, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, again and again and again. And then when he comes up to the hour, which is his death, he highlights here what is really happening. My soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, bring glory to your name. And of course, the Father answers back. And then Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out or exposed, and last time I tried to make the case that the ruler of this world, everything that is wrong with the kingdom of the world, all of that is exposed and driven out, and I think something uh, really happened here at the cross that there was a real change. In In a rather dark and disturbing way, when Jesus had the purple robe put on and the crown of thorns and the reed scepter And when he was placed on the cross and it said he is the king of the Jews, um, I think we can view the the crucifixion as really the coronation of Jesus as king. Rejected by humanity, but yet this is where God takes the throne as king of this world. And just as one bit of support for that, I'll go through this quickly, uh, but this whole throne room scene in Revelation, I think that's the point of it. Let me just read this quickly. That You know about the four living creatures. They sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. When they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So this is a throne room scene. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will they were given existence and life. And then, you know, something really unusual happens. That there's this scroll in the right hand of the one who's on the throne. And there's writing on the inside and outside of the scroll. This is Ezekiel's scroll. Maybe we can talk about later. And then a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice says, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll? And it seems really strange. It's kind of drawn out that God is there holding the, thro- the scroll 
and the question is asked, who is worthy? And as God holds the scroll, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And John began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. And so the point of all of this is who comes into the throne room scene at this point? Hey, but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. And this can be fairly translated as the violently slaughtered lamb. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward, took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne and assumes the place on the throne. Okay, so what is the meaning? And I think uh, the meaning, we, we may have talked about this a few months ago, uh, the numbers in Revelation so often have a, a, a theological significance. Rather than trying to identify who are the four living creatures, who are the 24 elders, if we just follow the numbers here, it's very interesting. God is on the throne. He's praised as being creator. And we have four living creatures and 24 elders around the throne. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And then the violently slaughtered lamb on the throne is worthy. And when that happens, there's a new song, which is a new understanding. We get right down to the very heart of who is on the throne. We peel back all the layers. We really understand the one who is on the throne. Jesus doesn't take the place of the Father, but it's more like there's this understanding because of Jesus. And we have a new song. And now John looked and heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures, the elders, and sang in a loud voice, and I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, and in the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they were singing to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So the, I think that the point here is we have this amplification of praise. Four, twenty-four, thousands and millions, everyone in the whole universe. And it's because of what Jesus revealed about God at the cross. And it's the enthronement of Jesus as king. So Jesus Christ, what, what does that mean? Um, we can think of this as, uh, I think wrongly, that this is Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ, son of Mary and Joseph Christ. But of course, that's not what it means. Okay, we have titles like this. Pharaoh, which is king of Egypt. Caesar, king of Rome. Tsar, king of Russia. We have various presidents throughout history. And Christ is really or Messiah, the meaning here is it's God's choice for the Jewish king. And we can fairly say, instead of Jesus Christ, Jesus King. Okay, what does that mean and is that significant? So the gospel story opens here with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Herod was king. King of what? Herod was actually king of the Jews. Herod, Herod was elected in, by the Roman council in, I think, 37 B.C. because uh, his mother was Jewish, his father wasn't, but he led the Romans to capture Jerusalem. And he was elected, as in, because of this, to be king of the Jews in that region. So Herod was the elected king of the Jews. And soon afterwards, some men, the Magi who studied the stars, came and they asked, who is the one who was born? 
to be king of the Jews. We saw his star when it came up in the east. We've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was very upset because he's the king. He wants to pass his kingship on to his sons, which he did, the other Herods. And so this is really a threat, right? Because he's king of the Jews and he's elected king of the Jews. So who is this individual who is born to be king of the Jews? So how'd all the baby boys killed to try to protect his throne? And when we look for it, and I'm just going to bring up a, th- a few here, but when we look through the Gospels, this uh, reference to Jesus as king comes up many times. And when he rode the donkey in, of course, the people said, look, your king is coming. And this was the tradition in the Old Testament that the king was inaugurated riding on a donkey. So Jesus did something that you would expect when you would have a new king. And of course, all the way through at the cross especially, this Jesus being king of the Jews, it's again and again and again. We, we read last time about Pilate asking, what should I do with the one you call king of the Jews? And of course they mocked him, long live the king of the Jews. And on the cross it said the king of the Jews. And people said, let us see the Messiah, the king of Israel, come down from the cross now and then we will believe in him. So it's all this Jesus being king, king, king of the Jews. So just a, a question to think about. Um, How is Jesus king? In what way is Jesus king? And just to to think about, is he king in my heart? King in my private life? Is he a spiritual king? Is he king in heaven? And we do what we want down here. How do we view all of the references to um, Jesus as king? Is it a private matter? Or is there something... Something else here involved. Well, I'm going to suggest there is something else involved. And there are a couple of very recent books on this that uh, have impressed me that the disciples and the early Christians meant this in a very literal, political way. Jesus is now king of this world. Of course, he's king of the Jews, but then he becomes king over Gentiles as well. King of everything. He's actually the king. So the message is there's a new emperor and he's king over the entire world. And it's interesting to read the the book of Acts with that in mind and you see the message. What did the early Christians actually go out? What was their message about Jesus? So here's one example about Paul and Silas. They came to Thessalonica and they went to a Jewish synagogue and they said about this Jesus that I'm announcing to you, he is the Messiah, king of the Jews. And some of them were persuaded and threw in their lot with Paul and Silas, including a large crowd of God-fearing Greeks, together with quite a few of the leading women. But the Jews were righteously indignant. And they besieged Jason's house uh, where they were staying and searched for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the mob. But when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the Christians before the town authorities. Now, here's the accusation about Paul and Silas. These are the people who are turning the world upside down, they yelled. Why? Well, now they've come here. Jason has had them in his house. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, and they are saying that there is another king whose name is Jesus. And when they heard these words, the crowd and the authorities were both greatly agitated because this is a revolt, right? We, We have a king. And the message is going out, no, there's a new king. Okay, so a very, very threatening message and that's we see that 
in the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate wanted to know, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes. And then I think Pilate was kind of disarmed when Jesus said, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. So he's saying, my ki- yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is nothing like your kingdom. You have the top-down kingdom. Mine is the bottom-up kingdom. Uh, my kingdom is different than your kingdom. Okay, so Jesus Christ, Jesus King, and of course after the resurrection now the message is he's not just king of the Jews, he's king of everything, Jews and Gentiles. And why were the Christians martyrs for 300 years? For preaching this very radical message. Okay, we've been used to all of Earth's history having these emperors and Caesars and so on, and now there's a, there's a new king. Okay, and think how we, people have been mistreated by kings and emperors all the way through. Now there's a new king. And so this was a very threatening message. And I think it's also why Christianity did spread like wildfire for the first 300 years. Very, very radical that the king of this world is like Jesus. Uh, that, that is a very radical message. Okay, so a book I would recommend, I think it's 2012-2013 by N.T. Wright, How God Became King. It's a really good book. And just a few weeks ago, and this is actually why I'm doing this Bible study, because N.T. Wright just did a translation of the New Testament, and it is called the Kingdom New Testament. And he goes through and translates, it seems like in most places where it's Jesus Christ, Jesus King. So here's just an example in Romans, that familiar verse, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, in King Jesus, our Lord. So it's an interesting um, translation of the New Testament, which I think is a fair way to translate it. Now, why did I say for 300 years things spread like wildfire and everything was good? The change, of course, happened with Constantine that we talked about last time, where really the church now took an entirely different role. It stopped preaching the Jesus King of this world message and it really became, as some have called, a, a chaplain of the state. Okay, Jesus took a much more uh, a subservient role. So the message of Jesus as king was very much reduced to Jesus being chaplain now of the state, Jesus being primarily concerned with uh, uh, the afterlife, getting to heaven, rather than a radical transforming message for this world. And the church began to discuss and debate doctrines, the Trinity, the nature of Jesus, not that those things aren't important, but it stopped preaching a very radical message about Jesus as king and the, the emphasis on personal salvation, which we don't want to uh, minimize. Okay, but I think when we really, really look at the book of Acts and the message that was preached, it was not about me, myself, and I, how do I get to heaven? Okay, it really was a message about how do we transform, <laughs> fix this broken world? How do we bring God's kingdom to this world. So we have kingdoms of the world, okay? And what the problem here is that when the church becomes a chaplain of the state, that we kind of see, well, who's really in charge? We have an emperor, we have a czar, we have a president or whoever. And then we have all these individuals here, secretary of state, secretary of defense, and Jesus becomes kind of um, secretary of the afterlife. Okay, we run the world the way we want to, Jesus is important for the one little aspect of, of getting to heaven. That phrase is not unique to me. Others have used that secretary of the afterlife. But I think it makes a huge difference if we put Jesus as king now of this world. 
rather than just involved with that, that one aspect, important though it may be, of getting to heaven. So the religious people, I, we talked last week about how shocking it was that they came to the point where they said, we have no king but Caesar. And this is really just like them taking their mask off finally at the crucifixion and saying, you know what, well, we, we play this game, but we're really no different than any kingdom of the world. We want power. And that they could actually even deny God uh, by saying that, it's, it's unbelievable. So in contrast, I think the message of Christianity is we have no king but Jesus. And I'll just bring up something that I have a little problem with, maybe some of you do as well, to pledge allegiance to the flag. This was started in 1942 and you know, kids pledging allegiance to the flag. I have a hard time with that. And I said last time, I see many wonderful things about our country, many good things, separation of church and state. I love Thomas Jefferson and, and many of our founding fathers, but I don't feel safe pledging allegiance to anyone other than Jesus King. What if your country, your flag, doesn't do what you think they should do? What if they really exhibit things that are the polar opposite of God's kingdom? Do you pledge allegiance to that? Uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Well, kind of tied along with that Jesus is king is what Jesus talks about all the way through. He talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. That is the central message of the gospel that we see in Jesus. So the announcement here by John the Baptist is repent or turn away from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, interestingly, the word here for repent is metanoia. Meta is change, like metamorphosis. Noia is brain. And so many of the more modern translations are translating this verse, turn to God and change the way you think and act. Change your mind. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. So the, the king came to establish his kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus went out, we were the first thing we read that he did, he began to tell the people, turn to God, change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near and I'm the king. And, and what we see in Jesus' life, everything that revolved around Jesus was the kingdom of heaven. Everything that he did was the kingdom of heaven. Everywhere he went, that was the kingdom of heaven. So when we think about the kingdom of heaven, we want to try to replicate that as much as possible, do what we see Jesus doing. That's bringing the kingdom of heaven to this world. So he taught in the synagogues and he spread the good news of the kingdom. It's always about the kingdom. And when he sent the twelve out to preach, he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what you're to say is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come. And in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, may your holy name be honored, name, character. And what are we to pray for? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the, the king comes to bring his kingdom from heaven to earth. And our greatest desire should be, may your kingdom, may that kingdom come to the here and now. It's right in the Lord's Prayer. Right? So the kingdom of God, where is it? Okay, when the Pharisees asked him when the kingdom of God would come, his answer was, well, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is, and that can either be translated as within or among you. Okay, it's, 
it's that kind of a kingdom. It's what we see Jesus doing. When that is within and among the followers of the king, that's the kingdom of God. And all of the parables, if you just look at all the parables that talk about the kingdom of God, it, it seems like that's the dominant theme. So one you're familiar with, the parable about the man who went out to sow grain and he scattered the seed in the field. Some of it fell along the path, the birds came and ate it up. Okay, what's the meaning? Well, the meaning is about people that receive the message about the kingdom. Those who hear the message about the kingdom but do not understand it are like the seeds that fell along the path. The evil one comes, snatches away what was sown in them. Okay, what about those who receive the message of the kingdom? Well, for those, the seeds sown in good soil stand for those who hear the message and understand it. They bear fruit. So the point I'm making here is that Jesus' emphasis on his kingdom, yes, there's an afterlife and heaven and all of that, but the, the emphasis on the kingdom message is the, the transformative aspect that it has on those who take it in. It has an effect. Okay, there's a healing, restorative aspect that extends then out to those around us. It's something that changes the here and now. We bear fruit. Okay, and, and just more examples. Jesus kind of looking around. What should we compare the kingdom of God? What should we compare it to? Well, there's almost nothing in this world that looks like the kingdom of God. So, well, what, what can we compare it to? What parable shall we use to explain it? Well, it's like this. A man takes a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the world, plants it in the ground, and after a while it grows up and becomes the biggest of all plants. It's a, that's a radical message. That becomes this huge plant. Birds come and nest in it, trying to say the, the great effect that this message has when it's internalized. He told another parable about the, the kingdom of heaven. It's like this. A woman takes some yeast, mixes it with a bushel of flour until the whole batch of dough rises. Um, again, that's what happens in a person and in a community that adopts the message of the king, internalizes the kingdom message. Or the kingdom of heaven is like this. Man happens to find a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up again and is so happy that he goes and sells everything he has and then goes back and buys that field. And I think when we can see that everything we know is kingdom of the world, that's, that's really all we can relate to. And when we see how different the real king is and how different his kingdom is, well, you give everything for that. I mean, you, that's just the most wonderful thing you can imagine, that that's what God's kingdom is like. Or it's like a man looking for fine pearls. When he finds one that is unusually fine, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that pearl. It's worth everything to you. And I won't give you all of these verses because we've talked about them already, but that the kingdom of heaven is the upside-down kingdom. You have to go to the lowest place and serve, not a top-down kingdom. And he kept having to tell his disciples this because their mindset about the kingdom was it's a kingdom of the world. When are you going to rule? When are you going to do the top-down kingdom thing? And even after the resurrection, if you read in Acts, as Jesus is being translated, the disciples ask, are you now going to rule over Israel? It seems like they didn't really get it to the very end. Okay, and Jesus said, no, it's not like that at all. So I want to just read a little bit, a uh, quote here in conclusion from N.T. Wright, which uh, I hope will reinforce here what I've been talking about from his book about God King. The Gospels tell of a Jesus who embodied the living God of Israel and whose cross and resurrection really did inaugurate the kingdom of that God. Not just the personal or spiritual eschatology of so much Western thought about going to, the hev going to heaven and all of that, but the social, cultural, political, and even cosmic eschatology 
That new creation itself has begun and will be completed. Jesus is ruling over that new creation and making it happen through his church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, Hebrews, and Revelation all think that Jesus is already in charge of the world. That is what they understood by God's kingdom. Now, our world is a mess, of course, because of freedom and God doesn't coerce, and so we see lots of horrible things going on in our world, but still, Jesus is king. Christians have never even thought about such a thing, let alone begin to figure out what it means for us today, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Western Christians today think that Jesus came primarily to teach people how to go to heaven. That is, I believe, a major and serious misunderstanding. We have belittled the cross, imagining it merely as a mechanism for getting us off the hook. It is much, much more. It is the moment when the story of Israel reaches its climax. The moment when, at last, the watchmen on Jerusalem's walls see their God coming in his kingdom. The moment when the people of God are renewed so as to be, at last, the royal priesthood who will take over the world. But notice, not with the love of power, but with the power of love. The moment when the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdoms of the world, God is now inviting us to build with him, to work together. And the four Gospels leave us with the primary application of the cross, not an abstract preaching about how to have your sins forgiven or how to go to heaven, but in an agenda in which the forgiven people are put to work, addressing the evils of the world in the light of the victory of Calvary. Jesus himself is at the heart of the new creation, on the move, as Jesus' people go on in the energy of the Spirit to be the dwelling place of God. So I, it makes a, a difference to me when I get up in the morning and just imagine, think about the reality of things, that Jesus is king, and I want to be part of his kingdom, and I want to live in a way to join with others to be a part of that kingdom, which seems that when it has really happened in human history, and we could talk about other times where it has happened in, in pockets um, since uh, the time of Constantine, um, it's, it's really radical. It's threatening to the kingdoms of the world, but it's also, I think, the most transforming thing um, that can happen in this world, and, and I think it's something we'll see bigger and bigger as time goes on. All right, so have a good Thanksgiving break, and in two weeks, I think we will start with uh, back in the Old Testament. So let's pray in conclusion. Dear Father, thank you so much for very unusual for us to consider that the real king, the real one with all of the power, is uh, Jesus, exactly as Jesus uh, revealed you to be. Please help us to more and more center in on what Jesus revealed about you and to uh, recognize Jesus as the real king, ruler of this world, and to take part in living out your kingdom, um, to come together in communities and with others, uh, to begin to reflect that kind of a serving, giving kingdom. Amen.